Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Come on, it's a good day to be in the house of God, isn't it? It is. It's a good day. Welcome to Vox Church. Listen, I want to welcome all of our locations. So if you're new to Vox, it's a little weird to you. Vox is one church in nine different locations, meeting in cities across Connecticut, Massachusetts. And right now, because of Snow Day Sunday, we consolidated all of our services to a 10 a.m. gathering. So we've got 10 a.m. services all across Connecticut, Massachusetts. Very exciting day, by the way, for our greater Stanford location. They have their first service at the Wall Street Theater in Norwalk, an awesome location. But can we say good morning to our whole church? Come on, Brantford, you can do a little better than that. Good morning, church. We love you. Welcome to Vox. So glad that you are here. Just amazed at what God is doing. And you braved the weather, so I'm glad you did. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Go ahead and look at that person next to you and tell them, well done. Come on, just tell them, well done. You dug out. Good job. Well done. Well done. Well done. So many exciting things going on. We're in the middle of a teaching series called This Present Renewal. We'll get to that in a moment. But I did want to announce, I've been waiting these last few weeks. I wanted to announce where we are with our two-year generosity campaign. So those of you that have been a part of the church for a while, you know that beginning two years ago, a little more than two years ago, we started a 24-month process where we committed to see the gospel advance through specific priorities, right? We talked about strengthening our current ministries, about building this anchor location that we are now yeah, in at this moment, because this was not looking like this two years ago, right? And then establishing a site acquisition fund to be able to go and uh, establish more permanent locations and our next anchor location in Hartford and then beyond. And so big goals, really stretching in faith. And our immediate goal was $17 million over two years, okay? $17 million over two years. If this is all new for you, just hang on for the ride, but I'm not receiving an offering or anything, so relax. I'm just giving you an update, okay? But, uh, but $17 million was the, was the two-year goal, which was a huge step of faith. And I talked to other pastors and leaders across the country, and they looked at our financials. They said, hey, 17 is going to be way beyond uh, what's realistic. And I said, well, you know, I don't think that uh, realistic is really what Vox Church is all about. And so, and so um, yeah, so our pledges totaled over 19 million, right? 19.5 million. Of course, a number of people uh, adjusted those during COVID, all the types of changes. So I've been asking our team, hey, 17 million was the original goal. 19.5 was the total pledges. Where did we finally land? And our final number, and so a number of people were still giving towards their pledges. And there's a few that are still coming in. But here's our final number as of right now. Okay, so like I said, some are still giving. Right now, we are at $18,608,941. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that just, wow. And so friends, it's so important for you to know, it didn't just allow us to strengthen our current ministries, which it did, okay? So we established new structures and new staffing for kids, for youth, for all types of ministries. And of course, we were able to build this location, but we are now postured and we're trusting the Lord to establish three more permanent facilities this year at Vox, okay? So that's our goal. We're looking at different facilities right now at a number of our uh, non-permanent locations. And so, but beyond that, beyond facilities, beyond ministries, the real purpose of this whole Wake My Heart journey 
was to wake our hearts, right? So that we would love what the Lord loves, so that we would be focused more on his eternal purposes than our temporary purposes. It's always natural for all of us to try to grab, to try to hold, to try to hoard, right? But the whole goal of Wake My Heart was, God, would you wake my heart for what breaks your heart? And so I'm so encouraged by the community of faith that has truly been awakened to the purpose of God in the world. And so thank you, Jesus, above all else. Thank you, Jesus, for a church, come on somebody, that is on mission like never before. We just, in my own family, I'm just being honest, in my own family, Christy and I, we dramatically increased our monthly giving through Wake My Heart. And as we got to January, uh, I just was talking with my wife two days ago, and we said, you know what, honestly, we're going to increase our giving, not decrease it after Wake My Heart, because the Lord's blessed us, He's established us, and we're trusting Him for the next level. And so I just, I'm so encouraged, let it be a new normal that we as a people are radically generous in our lives. And so I really do believe that's what God's doing because when you have a people who are truly dedicated to the mission of Christ, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. And so this present renewal, that's where we are today, looking at spiritual renewals in the Bible. We started two weeks ago with the story of Samuel and how the people of God returned, right? If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and watch. It's an important part of this series. And then last week, we looked at the story of Elijah and that God is a fire. Go ahead and look at that person next to you and tell him he is a fire. He is a fire. God is a fire. And we saw what it means to live with a heart on fire for God. Today, we're going to look at a story about the king in the Old Testament named Josiah. And of course, this whole series is built on this idea, and we've been talking about this each week, that 11 words really can change your life, right? 11 words really can change your life. You know what they are, right? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Look at him with me. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. A promise, a promise that tells our hearts that if you will just make him priority, in your pursuit, in your focus, in your attention, God will in fact respond to that priority. So King Josiah, as revival sweeps the nation, it's a longer story, so I'm gonna jump around a little bit. You can read it all in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, but we're gonna bounce just a little bit today, starting in verse one. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed his ways as his father David, not turning aside to the right, or to the left. Now, David, just so you know, was like his great, 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 great grandfather, not his actual father, but they're saying his ancestor. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, the Asher poles and the idols. Down in verse eight. In the eighteenth year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Saphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, and Messiah, and the ruler of the city. That's how you say it. Don't question my pronunciation. With Joah and Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord. His God. Okay, so he's going through this progression. Now bounce to verse 14. It says this. It says, While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given to Moses. So they're cleaning out the temple. They find this book. Verse 18, it says this. And when Shaphan the secretary informed the king, he said, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He was deeply convicted. 
Verse 29, let's see what he did. And the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And he went up to the temple of the Lord, the people of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Verse 31, and the king stood by his pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his statutes and his decrees with all his heart, with all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in the book. This is God's word. I want to talk to you today for a few minutes under the topic, things can change. Will you tell somebody around you, things can change change. Come on, Greater Stanford. Come on, Hartford. Things can change. I know that it might look like they're not changing. I know that it might seem impossible. I know that you might survey your circumstances and say, it's always going to be this way. I'm always going to battle with this depression. I'm always going to struggle with this anxiety. I'm always going to have these issues in my relationship. My family's always going to be that way. There's some good news for us today, and it's that things can change. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you are working right now on this snowy Sunday that you brought us together, that God, everybody joining online, everybody here in Brantford, all across our locations as we worship you right now, you've brought us together for a purpose to speak to our hearts. And so I pray that you would accomplish that purpose today in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Macaulay Culkin was 10 years old when he became the most famous child actor on planet Earth. Britney Spears was eight when she auditioned for the Mickey Mouse Club way back in the day. Michael Jackson was six when he became the lead singer of the Jackson Five, and all of their lives were significantly shaped by the pressure that they experienced when they were young. And so often, when a child goes through that type of pressure, that type of responsibility, that type of instability in their lives at a young age, uh, they pay dividends their whole life. They're impacted, affected by it. Psychologists have a name for this. They call it stress acceleration hypothesis. Stress acceleration hypothesis says that if at an early age you experience high levels of stress, overwhelming responsibility, it can actually change your brain and it's often connected to irrational fear, overworking, anxiety. Go ahead and look at that person next to you and tell that explains a lot about you. Go ahead and tell it. That explains, it does. It actually, oh, too close to home. Okay. And so, and so these kids were messed up because they became super famous and important at a very young age, and it messed up their whole world. Well, the story begins with a young man named Josiah. In fact, he's not a young man. He's a boy, right? He's eight years old, and he becomes the king. Now, psychologically, I don't think that that's incredibly healthy for an eight-year-old kid to be the king of Israel. And if you know his story, he wasn't exactly set up for success. His grandfather, Manasseh, was crazy and totally messed up Israel, destroyed the nation in a thousand different ways, and then he turned the kingdom over to his father, Amon. Amon was killed in a coup by his generals, okay? And so now his father, Josiah's father, Amon, is dead because his generals overthrew him, and he now, at age eight, becomes king. And so you look around the landscape of Josiah's life and you go, this kid is not set up for success, right? He's going to become a statistic. What we know of him is he's going to be a tyrant. He's going to be out of control with the power that he's given. He's way too young for that type of power. He's going to fail as a king. His life's going to be a mess. He's going to ride Israel right into the dirt. It's going to be an absolute disaster. But friends, when every statistic would tell us that it's going to be a disaster, God raises up a king 
to bring spiritual renewal. And that's good news, by the way, because Josiah's life is supposed to teach us something about our lives, that no matter what the circumstances say, no matter what the stats tell you, no matter what your past defines you as, things can change. Things can change, friend. There's a God who rewrites history. There's a God who transforms stories, a God who picks the unlikely person for supernatural purpose. And so if you look at yourself and you say, Justin, that's me. I grew up with that stress acceleration syndrome thing you were just talking about. I grew up with way too much pressure as a kid. I had to be an adult by the time I was 10. I had to deal with this and that, or my dad was always off the hook, or he was abusive, or this person was an addict, or nobody cared about me. Or maybe you grew up and you say, honestly, my family was Christians, but they didn't set the type of example that a Christian should set. And so my life's been a mess. Friends, good news, good news for your soul. Your past does not determine your future. That's a good start to the sermon, right? Your past does not determine your future. Things can change. I know it's messy. I know it's challenging. I know it is not easy, but things can change. And so here we are, even now, God calling you, God speaking to you, saying that your past doesn't have to define your future, that in your world, right now, as you look at the problems and the issues that you're facing, things can change. And so God steps into Josiah's story. We're told at age 16, he begins to seek the Lord, which is interesting because uh, according to the context, his family wasn't having Bible studies. There were no religious services to teach him about God. And yet at 16 years old, he had a spiritual hunger. He had a spiritual hunger for the Lord. And you know, sometimes in the story of God, he just calls us and we begin to experience a sense of a hunger for him even long before we ever read the Bible or we ever went to a religious service. Maybe you can identify with that. That you look at your story and you say, you know, there's really no reason I should even be in church right now. There's really no reason that I should be a follower of Christ, that I should be reading my Bible. And yet, as I look at my life, I see that God drew me along with a spiritual hunger. You know, I look at my life. I don't come from a long line of pastors, all right? I don't come from a long line of preachers. My parents were divorced when I was a kid. There was no one pressuring me, requiring me to be a part of a church. And yet, as a teenage kid, right around the same age as Josiah, I found in my heart a spiritual hunger. And I can remember my friends in high school saying, why are you getting up at 5.30 in the morning to read the Bible? Why are you always about this Jesus? What's so obsessive? Why is this such a big deal in your life? And my response was like, I don't know. I don't know, but I have this spiritual hunger and I have to seek God. And so that's exactly what happened to Josiah. He had this sense. And then we're told at age 20, he started to tear down the idols in the high places. I love that picture because the high places were the places where the people believed they could have access to the divine. They were the tops of the mountains, okay? And so people had set up idols to false gods in these various mountaintops. And so Josiah says, listen, this is the obvious disobedience to the Lord. I don't even understand the Bible. I don't even understand God fully, but I know this is wrong. And so the high places represent the obvious sins in our lives. And so he starts to tear down those obvious sins. And so what we're seeing in the life of Josiah is a progression, okay? And I wonder if today you can identify with that progression in your own life. It began with a spiritual hunger. And I pray that this present renewal that we're in the middle of right now ignites your heart with a spiritual hunger. But from that spiritual hunger, he became convicted about the high places, about the obvious sins in his life. But then from there, we're told, it's a few years later that he starts to renovate the temple. 
And I love that picture from hunger to the high places to the temple. What does the temple represent? All throughout the Bible, we see the temple as a picture of your heart. Right in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 3, he says that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. And so you are, the believer, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So just as it was the job of Israel, right, to repair and maintain the temple, so it is your job, the job of every believer, to cultivate and tend to the issues of your heart. And so Josiah starts that process. He starts renovating the temple. And it doesn't take long before his secretary shows up in his office and he says, your majesty, we have found a book. Look at that person next to you and ask him, have you found the book? Go ahead, just ask him, have you found the book? Have you? Have you found the book? Have you found the book? Now, this is according to what we know of Josiah, the first time he ever reads the Old Testament scriptures. And when he hears the Old Testament scriptures read, he is undone. We're told he tears his clothes, right? Why such an impact? Why is he so moved? See, he realized that he had been disobeying God's word. He realized that he had been dishonoring God's word. And that's where we need to begin today, church, with a simple idea, a simple question. That question being, what does this book mean to you? What place does it hold in your life? And I think all of us have subtly different answers. And it's an important question to reflect upon and consider today. I think for some of us, we may not say it this way, but if we're honest, maybe you're a little bit embarrassed by the book. You know, you say, well, you know, there's some nice things in there, and I like those things like peace and love and joy and stuff, and God loves me. But then there's some other stuff in there that's kind of weird, and why did he kill that guy, and, and, and why, did, why did that have to happen, and, and this, I don't understand this, and, and it feels like it's not very historically accurate, and it feels like it, it's kind of like just fables and, and lily tales, so like I'm sort of embarrassed by certain parts of the book. Like, like I, I, I like the, some things that Jesus said and everything, but then there's other things, and maybe that's where you stand with the Bible, that there are kind of parts of it that are like, uh, I don't really believe that, it doesn't really feel relevant to my life. Some of us, we see the Bible and we're like, well, Justin, it's kind of a list of all the things I shouldn't do, right? Don't do this. Don't do that. As if it was God's intention to rob you of all life and joy, right? That his whole goal is to limit you and to stop you from having fun. And so that's how we see the Bible. We say, oh, it's kind of this, this limiting thing that takes this and takes that from me. Well, I can tell you this, honestly, I'm getting old. I don't know. I don't know if I look old yet, but I'm getting old. And I've spent the last 25 years of my life studying this book every single day. And I've concluded that there are far more reasons to trust the Bible than there are to reject the Bible. And I've become convinced that this book that we read every Sunday together is historically accurate, scientifically sound, prophetically reliable, and thematically consistent. I've become convinced that it is in fact the living word of God the living word of God. And if you come to that conviction, it actually changes everything in your life. See, for the last 2,000 years, historians have been scrambling to discredit the Bible. And yet today, historically, the scriptures, those that have done their homework understand, the scriptures actually stand on firmer ground historically than ever before because discovery after discovery actually affirms the events again and again in the Bible. The Bible is not a science book, right? If you're a scientist here, the Bible was not written as a science book. It was not trying to prove scientific facts. But the interesting thing about the scriptures is that the scriptures are consistent 
legitimately, scientifically reliable. In other words, you would expect the Bible to consistently reference the science of the day. And yet, rather than referencing the science of the day, you find that the Bible rings true about things that the people in the Bible didn't even understand scientifically. For example, many people in ancient cultures thought that the world was flat. You know this, you learned this in elementary school, right? There were many, many generations where people thought that the world was flat. Yet when the Bible speaks of the world in Isaiah 40, 22, it says that God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. So the Bible calls the world a sphere long before scientists could tell us it was. A few hundred years ago, people still believe in what was called bloodletting, all right? Bloodletting was the idea, scientifically, that human beings have four different humors. And in order to heal someone, you'd have to take blood out of their body in order to balance the humors in their body, right? It didn't work so well, and a whole lot of people died in the process. But long before we understood circulation or oxidization or all the various things that blood does in the body, Leviticus 17 told us that your life is in your blood. And so again and again, again, the science is not, that's not the purpose of the Bible, but we see these affirmations of things we've later discovered throughout the scriptures. You may not realize that the Bible is full of thousands, thousands of specific prophecies about the future, many of which have already been fulfilled. 300 specifically dealing with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of which have been fulfilled. It was written by 40 different people in three languages on three different continents over 1,600 years. But the miraculous thing about this book is that from Genesis to Revelation, it has one supernaturally consistent theme. And so this book is far more than a list of anecdotal suggestions for a better life. This, look, this book is far more than a history lesson of an ancient people long ago. This book must become for us the very living God-inspired word for your life. And that changes everything. See, throughout history, many of us don't know this, but people have died for the sake of the book. People have died for the sake of the book, not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands and even in the hundreds of thousands. Some of you may know the story of William Tyndale. He was burned at the stake and his crime against humanity was he wanted to read the Bible in English. And so he translated the Bible into English and he was killed for it. Maybe you've heard of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Many people haven't. But an estimated 100,000 people were killed, slaughtered in Europe. Why? Because they wanted to read the Bible. So often we take for granted this book because we've got it in 700 different translations on our phones, but we don't realize that this book has been a book that people have longed to read for generations and not been able to. Patrick Henry famously said, the Bible is worth more than all the other books which have ever been printed. The mathematician Isaac Newton said, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God written by those who were inspired. Former President Teddy Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. A lot cheaper too, by the way. And Denzel Washington said, I read the Bible every day. And so friends, I just want to tell you today, if Denzel does it, it's probably a good idea for you and I to do it too. So in 2 Chronicles 34, we see this progression, right? What begins with spiritual hunger, and then it moves to the removing of idols, and then the cleaning out of the temple, which is the heart, and then comes a conviction around the word. Look at verse 19 with me, how... Josiah responds, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes, right? 
he tore his robes. Why would he do that? It's a strange thing. We don't really do that culturally anymore, you know, tear our robes. It was a physical display of great sorrow and anguish. He tore his robes because he understood that the Bible is a transcendent authority, okay? A transcendent authority. This is a strange concept for our minds, but it supersedes my preference and my opinion. It contradicts oftentimes what I think or feel, but in submission to it, I end up finding life. See, we live in a time where we've elevated human reason above all else, right? We say, listen, what I think about a reality is my reality. And so I'm going to pick and choose from the Bible. I'm going to like this. I'm not going to like that. But what we don't realize is that if you treat God's word that way, you end up creating a God that looks just like you. And it's impossible to have relationship with God if he's not able to correct you. All right. Now stay with me. Just try to imagine any other relationship like this on earth, right? Like imagine if I said to my wife, hey, babe, I love you with all my heart, but here's how our relationship's going to work. You are never allowed to disagree with me. Okay. And if you ever do disagree with me, the relationship's over. I'm not going to have it. I'm leaving. So, so it's going to be a great relationship. It's going to be really healthy, but you're never allowed to disagree. My wife would slap me in the face, right? That would never work. It would never work because relationships don't work that way. And yet we come to God and we say, all right, God, here's a book you wrote, but there's certain parts about I don't really like. So I'm going to take those out and I'm not going to consider those, but all the ones that you do uh, affirm me and, and that I enjoy, I'm going to hold on to those and then we're going to have a relationship. Friends, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. No relationship can work that way. But I think this is how we often approach the Bible. See, conviction has to come from his word. In fact, if we're even tepid or casual about what his word says, we can't be close to God. You remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus warned the church and he said, because you are lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth, right? He says, if you're just tepid about the things of the scriptures, if you don't have a conviction about the word, then you can't have close relationship with God because the word needs to be allowed to operate like a scalpel in your life. That's why Hebrews 4 says the word of God is alive and active. Look at it. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, your heart, according to Proverbs, is like deep water. Oftentimes, you don't even know what's going on in there. Let's be real, right? You don't know why you're frustrated, why you're angry, why you're sad, why you're happy even sometimes. And so your heart is often even undiscerning to you. You're not sure why you feel or think a certain way, but the Bible steps in speaks over us and brings conviction about the various things in our hearts, brings clarity to the areas that are blinded by us or unable to be seen by us, and then brings healing. And so is it possible that some of us here, I think probably all of us here to one degree or another, haven't considered the place that the book should hold in our hearts and then applied it to our lives? Look at what Galatians 6 says. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, this doesn't mean that God won't forgive you of your sin. He will. But don't be deceived. If you keep planting those seeds of lust, you're going to reap a harvest of destruction. Don't be deceived. If you keep planting those seeds of rebellion, you're going to reap a harvest of disconnection. Don't be deceived. If you keep uh, planting those, those seeds of greed, you're going to reap a harvest of loneliness. See, God can't be mocked. 
and the word brings conviction. Look what he says in Ephesians 5. It says, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be sure of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You see, the word, when we hear it, should cut us. The word, when we hear it, should challenge us. The word, when we hear it, should convict us. And so Josiah hears these warnings in scriptures and he's convicted. And maybe you're here today and you've never heard those warnings before. Or maybe you have heard them, but you've never really heard them before. And a conviction is even coming upon you now. Come, Lord Jesus, because that conviction is going to draw you closer to him. That conviction, though it may wound you, is eventually going to heal you. That God's purpose in his word is to bring conviction so that you can find him. Friends, sometimes the surgeon has to dig out the bullet, right? Sometimes you've got to have some significant operation before you can be healed, but it can't stop with conviction. God's word brings conviction, but it must lead to action, right? It must lead to action, and that's exactly what Josiah does in verse 31. Look, it says, the king stood by the pillar. He renewed the covenant with the presence of the Lord, and to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his statutes, and his decrees with all his heart, with all his soul, and to obey the words of the covenant written in the book. And so he gathered the whole nation and he renewed the commitment. That's what a covenant is. It's a sacred commitment. The sacred commitment between him and God and between the nation and God, he renewed it. And then we're told in chapter 35 that Josiah reinstates the Passover. Let me read to you verse one. It says, Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. The Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. Now, the Passover was the most important feast in the Jewish calendar. If you know the history of Israel, you know that the people of God were slaves in Egypt. But God delivered Israel from Egypt through this supernatural act of the Passover, right? They took a lamb. Each family took their own lamb. They killed. They slaughtered the lamb. They wiped the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And judgment fell on Egypt. But everyone that was in a house that was covered in the blood was spared. And after this great loss, Pharaoh released Israel. And they were set free into the wilderness to begin their journey to the promised land. And so the Passover was a celebration that Israel participated in every year to remember how God had passed over their sins through the sacrifice of that lamb. And this massive Passover had not been celebrated for over 400 years in Israel. See, they had lost the Bible. I mean, the Bible was in the basement of the temple. Nobody had even read it. They had forgotten the tradition. They had forgotten the blessing of the Lord. And so now Josiah reinstates this Passover. Historians tell us that probably over 500,000 Israelites gathered in this massive massive Passover celebration. And so it's important for us to ask, hey, why was it so significant for them to reestablish the Passover? What was it about this tradition that was so important to God? Now, through the Passover, God is trying to teach Israel and us today how to recognize his plan of salvation. See, the Passover taught a principle And it's a principle that if you understand it, it will open up your whole life to God. 
If you understand the principle of the Passover, it opens up your soul to be able to receive the life of God. And that principle is salvation through substitution. Go ahead and look at the person next to you and tell them salvation through substitution. Come on, tell them today. Salvation through substitution. Salvation through substitution. See, what he was teaching Israel through the Passover was that righteous deeds cannot get you into right relationship with God. That because of sin, humanity is separated from God. But because of his holiness, there is a divide between us. God is altogether separate. God is perfect and blameless in all his ways. And my sinfulness keeps me from him. But God took a lamb, slaughtered that lamb, wiped the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the home so that everybody who entered into that house would be passed over. The judgment would not fall on them. There was a substitution, and through the substitution came salvation. And so you were a slave, is what he's telling the the Israelites. You were a slave, but God saved you through a substitute. Now, a few years after the Passover, if you continue to read the story of King Josiah, I'd like to tell you King Josiah lived a long and successful life. King Josiah saw all of Israel return to the Lord and they forever followed God after his reign. But that's not how the story goes. A few years after King Josiah established the Passover in Israel, he was killed in battle. And after his death, the nation returned to its sin. The nation went back to forgetting about God. And so you read the story and you realize that King Josiah was not the savior of Israel, but his story was intended to point us beyond 2 Chronicles 34. His story was to aim us at a king who would, in fact, redeem the world, right? That just as Josiah would come to cleanse the temple of Jerusalem, so it would be Jesus in the line of Josiah who would come to cleanse the temple of your heart. And just as Josiah restored the covenant between God and his people, so Christ at that last supper, he inaugurated the covenant, the new covenant, the new testament between God and the world. See, it was Hebrew tradition. Oh, it gets even better, friends. It was Hebrew tradition that every family would provide a lamb, right, out of their means and they would slaughter that lamb at the Passover celebration. That was the tradition of Israel. But in the story of King Josiah, he breaks with tradition. Let me show you in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 7. It says this, Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats. That's a lot of lambs, right? 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offering and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's, next two words are very important, own possessions. In other words, King Josiah was pointing to a further time, a greater time, a more significant story where the king would provide the lamb. There was always a plan of salvation through substitution where the king would provide the lamb. See, when you were a slave, when you had no way to be free, when you were bound by the sins of Pharaoh's camp, when you were enslaved to your own brokenness, the greatest king became the weakest lamb so that in a super natural exchange through a substitutionary sacrifice, you could be forever forgiven of all your sin, forever accepted by God, delivered from the bondage of the devil, and brought into the light of grace. This is the story that God wants to write on your soul. Salvation through substitution. Salvation through substitutions. Friends, I want to tell you today that there are a lot of reasons why I believe in this book. I believe in this book because it is historically accurate, because it is scientifically 
perfectly reliable because it is all the things that I mentioned earlier. But the greatest reason why I trust God's word above all else, and you could honestly take away every other reason, and this alone has convinced my heart that it is in fact God's word for you and me right now. The greatest reason that I trust God's word is because I met Jesus there. I met Jesus there. You have to understand that Jesus carries a self-authenticating glory. He carries a glory all unto himself, that when you begin to realize that his story of substitutionary sacrifice is woven into every story, is hidden in every story, his purity, his purpose, his plan, speaking to us through Josiah, speaking to us through Abraham, speaking to us through Joseph, speaking to us through David, every story up and down, back and forth, always calling us to recognize Christ. See, God left clues through the Old Testament so that they would aim us at Jesus, when the resurrected Christ walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, beginning with the books of Moses and through the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, Jesus explained how it was all about him. And when you begin to see him in the book, and when you begin to realize that God's been trying to get your attention your whole life, that he has made a substitute for you so that you can stand in perfection by grace, so that you can be loved and received by him as you submit yourself to his word when you realize that all along he's been trying to convince your heart that this is true, you give yourself to his word and the Holy Spirit gives you a divine assurance. I love what John Calvin said, an old theologian. Check this out. He said, the testimony of the spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who was spoken through the mouths of prophets must penetrate, I'm praying for this today, into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. Because until He illumines their minds, they ever waver among many doubts. I want to tell you today that the Holy Spirit can give you an assurance where you know in your knower that this is in fact God's word and you have the courage to come under every word he spoke. And as you come under his truth, rightly discern his word, you discover that it's God's intention through his word to provide for you in a broken, sinful world a reservoir of supernatural hope. See, when God's word becomes the word over your life, you find that it provides for the soul precisely what the soul needs. This is why in Hebrews chapter 6, it says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And you might say, well, I don't feel hope like that. I don't know hope like that. Well, you can. But the first step is spiritual hunger. And from there, tearing down the idols in the high places. And from there, take time to clean out the temple. And from there, discover the book. And from there, let the book speak conviction 
and let that conviction become action. And as you do, you'll find in your soul a reservoir of hope. You say, what's a Christian got to be hopeful about? This world's crazy. Everything's backwards. Nothing's just. Nothing's fair. What's a Christian got to be hopeful about? Salvation through substitution. <laughs> Salvation through substitution that when all hope looks like it's lost, there's a God who all along has had a plan to wash you clean, heal your heart, redeem your soul, give you eternal life, and even now, that life begins. So here's my word for us today, church. If you will center your whole life on God's word, then you will he will fill your whole heart with his hope. If you'll just center your whole life on God's word, he will fill your whole heart with his hope. When I started praying about this message and studying the life of King Josiah, that title, Things Can Change, was the overarching thought that I had as I looked at the story. But things can change as the people of God discover the word of God as the final authority over their lives. And I believe that for every one of us, the Lord has a word of conviction today. And I know that we come from different places, that we have different backgrounds, but I believe that God, even right now, in this present renewal, and we've been speaking over this church, that God has called us to present renewal. That even right now, in this present renewal, God is calling you and me to approach his word with a different mentality. So at every one of our locations right here in Brantford, I just want to invite you to stand up. And I wonder what the Lord would be saying to you on this snowy Sunday. And I want to invite you just to take a couple of minutes right now and reflect on the words that you've heard and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you today. And maybe you're here and if you're honest, you've never really considered the Bible the final authority over your life. You've never really investigated its historicity or its scientific accuracy. You've never really considered the prophecies that affirm its divine authority. Or maybe you've never seen that divine theme of salvation through substitution woven into every story to give your heart a supernatural assurance that 1,600 years and 40 authors could never write the same story, but by God. God gave us a book so that we could have his truth preserved. But if you're here and you've not allowed that book to become for you conviction, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to meet you right now. And I believe that even in this moment, beyond any history lesson or scientific example that I could give, my prayer for you today is that you would simply see Jesus. Because if you're able to see him, he has a self-authenticating glory. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. And his glory is so perfect 
that to see it is to have your heart captivated by him. And it's enough. It's enough to convince you for the rest of your life, I need to become a person of the book. If you don't have conviction about God's word, I want to pray that even right now the Holy Spirit would come upon you and that, like Calvin said, that you would experience an assurance from him. But maybe you're here, and if you're honest, you've lost track of God's word like Israel did. It's collecting dust in the basement. It hasn't been priority in your life. You don't approach it as the living word of God for you. And you've lost track. And in the process, you've lost hope. I pray that today would be a moment of renewal for you, where you would approach God's word afresh and anew as what it really is, his word. But then thirdly, if you're here and you haven't taken that next step of conviction to action, and you know that there's something in the Bible that maybe you don't like so much, but you know that you need to act upon the truth and you've been unwilling. Today's a turning point. I want to pray for you that you would take that step. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I sense your nearness right now. And I thank you that you are calling us to a present renewal, a spiritual renewal, and that a big part of that renewal is that we change the way we think about your word. God, I just want to ask you even now to bring conviction into this place. Right now at Wall Street Theater, right now in Hartford, right now in North Haven, right now in Springfield, everybody joining us online, every person in Brantford. Lord, I pray that you would sweep across this place and even now that you would stir our hearts for your word. Lord, for those that have lost your word in the basement and it's collecting dust, I pray a new zeal to know you through your word would take a hold of our hearts and captivate us. I pray for those who have never really submitted to your word, but seen it more as a collection of good ideas. I pray that today would be a turning point where they would realize that to be a person of the word means to come under it as the authority of my life and to seek to understand it personally. Lord, I pray for every person that's lost hope that today would be a day where you would allow us to experience what the writer of Hebrews called an anchor for the soul that we would even now realize that your word gives us promises that can anchor our lives in hope. I pray that, Father, as we sing together, that the life and the power of Jesus would manifest among us. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.